And so I want to invite you now to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to read Matthew chapter 27 beginning in, uh, in verse, excuse me, in verse 45 all the way to the end of the entire book. We're going to spend most of our time paying attention to Matthew chapter 28, but I want to give you the full context of it, and there's a couple reasons why. The first one is this. Uh, I want to read a big chunk of scripture here because it is my goal on a regular basis to stretch your attention span for the Bible, to stretch your appetite and ability to read lots of the Bible. And so if you find yourself as we're reading along, if you find yourself kind of like dazing off and maybe like spacing out, uh, don't, don't be discouraged by that, but I would ask you to pay close attention to the thing that pulled you back, right? So if you find yourself like spacing out as we're reading through a big chunk of this text, pay attention to the thing that kind of grabs your attention and pulls you back into the text. And so I want to expand your attention span and appetite for the Bible, but I also want to, as best I can, this is why we devote a pretty large chunk of time to this, I want to expand your capacity and your appetite for the teaching of the Bible. I want to read in verse 45 the whole story. I want to begin sharing with you a, uh, uh, something a mentor of mine kind of passed on to me. I heard a, a mentor that I look up to very much uh, shared with, uh, share with me and kind of heard him say this about uh, Good Friday sometime back. And his son, who had school off for Good Friday, said to his father, you know, like, hey, dad, let's do something, right? Let's go play ball. Let's, let's, let's have fun together. I've got, I've got Good Friday off, dad. Let's go do something. And his dad who was a pastor, a mentor of mine, was like, I'm not so sure that's possible. I got some work to do. I, I, gotta, I gotta get ready and, and finish my sermon to preach on Easter Sunday. And his son said very wisely, Dad, everybody already knows the story. Just tell the story and add a little sparkle. <laughs> to which I would agree. And so that's all I want to do. I want to read this story to you begin to consider the possibility that it's true and begin to invite you to consider that this is real and then you'll see some little bits of sparkle that Matthew throws in to convince us of just that. So beginning in verse 45, starting on Good Friday. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee. Ministering to him, among many, were Mary Magdalene, 
and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen, in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come! See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority And heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Before we begin to dig into this text, would you pray with me? Would you just simply bow your heads and pray with me and ask God to bless our time together? 
Lord, these are difficult things. These are difficult words. These are concepts and ideas that are beyond our grasp. They're beyond our imagination. Without your help, we cannot discern them. Without your help, we cannot see what is being communicated here. And so would you just, in in your own words, would you just ask God uh, to speak to you and that it would make sense? Just in your own way, would you just, in your own meditation, speak to God, ask God, would you please just speak to me and that it would make sense? And then in your own way, would you do me a favor, would you just ask God that he would speak through me and that it would be clear? God, we thank you and we love you. We thank you for not leaving us to be abandoned and silence and darkness, but you have spoken a word that's come to life in Jesus. Now we want to see it and hear it and know it and be changed by it today because it's by his name and for his glory that we ask these things. Amen. I want to just tell the story like it is and maybe show you the sparkle that Matthew gives to compel us to believe that it might be true. I say that because one of the more interesting things that you ought to know about people like me who get to open the Bible and teach it and preach it on a regular basis, Easter is a really weird thing. And so at least two things I want to always repeat on Easter, right? The first one is this, is that in, in, a great, in a great way, like Easter is not that big a deal for us in the grand scheme of things. In that we are resurrection people, period. Like, that we are called to be resurrection people all the time, right? And I share this with you every Easter and even Christmas, for that matter. Uh, like, this is kind of a double-edged sword here. I'll give you a little bit of advice about believing the gospel and a little bit of advice about relationships. But if you, if you only love that significant someone once a year on Valentine's Day, right? If you only, like, really get excited about them, take them out, love them, and and express your gratitude and affection for them once a year, again, I just break this to you, you're kind of betraying yourself the rest of the year. And in fact, you're kind of making it worse on yourself because you're actually showing what a fake you are. And so just in the same way, we don't want to just simply on an Easter go like, oh, well, since Hallmark says there's an Easter bunny, uh, we better agree with them and get excited on Easter. Instead, we want to be risen Savior people all the time. The, the risen Savior motivates us every single week to consider what it means that Jesus is not in the tomb, he's alive, and then he's working, and he meets us in that work. The second thing is this, is that uh, I always encourage you, if you can, to pray for me and other pastors on Easter. There's this strange thing, because we believe Hallmark, we believe this really is a big day, uh, in a way that isn't godly or, or like Jesus glorifying. And so there's this weird pressure for pastors and other people who lead us to look to Jesus to really perform on a day like today. Like, you better, do, you better not stink today. You better not lay an egg on Easter. And, and there's this strange, oh, yeah. I can't believe I just said that. You better do really well on Easter. You better perform and achieve on Easter. And here's, here's the profound thing I want you to pray for me. And you ought to pray for every other person who opens this Bible or any person who tells you that Jesus is alive. This is of all the days to know that Jesus has got this and I don't have to perform, today ought to be that one, right? 
of all the days to know that Jesus will accomplish this. He will be victorious. This is not up to me or to you. This ought to be the one. And so I simply want to tell the story as it's told. You saw Matthew telling us, you noted just a few different things that were really important in the way that he notes that he had died and then there were careful the people who had put him to death were careful to make sure that what happened next would not be a source of debate or dispute and so they 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 made sure to cover their bases they put some armed guards around the tomb and yet we find ourselves discovering in chapter 28 that despite their best efforts something miraculous happened and it changed the entire course of history and i want to convince you that this story actually has something to do with us and I think I can summarize it in this way. I don't know if you caught this. He says, they, the people came to the tomb, and then the angel says one of the most profound, but also the most common statements in the entirety of the Bible, do not be afraid, in verse 5, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And there's this profound statement right here. He says, he is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Now come and see the place where he led, Lay And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's ridden, risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you. And then I love it says there you will see him. He'll meet you there. And then just like, I guess maybe the first hashtag ever, he just says, see, I have told you. As if to say like, you're going to want to remember this. Don't come back to me late, later and tell me you don't remember this. And there's this profound statement in this this. This, I would say a profound sequence of commands based on the resurrection of Jesus as this angel gives these people. Don't be afraid. He's not here. There's an empty tomb. He's risen. And he says something profound. Come and see, but then immediately after that, then go and tell, and then you will see him. And don't miss that. He's, he's saying, look, Jesus is not here. You expected him to be here. He's alive. He is no longer here. And if you will go and tell, and you will go from this place, he will meet you. You will see him. He's going ahead of you. And something profound will happen. You'll see him. So I just want to walk through some profound principles of this text. Just let it stand on its own. Beginning in the very beginning, it says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Stop right there. That's important. Uh, Luke tells us the same story by saying, and they arose early. He's making a callback to that phrase that we find throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, all the way to the New, that whenever uh, a passage of Scripture starts with the phrases, and they woke up early, you're meant to like, like sirens are supposed to go off in your head, and you're going to go like, whoa, God's about to do something crazy, right? Every time it shows up, God does something miraculous to like dawn of that first day of the week. Now notice he also says after the Sabbath, right? Sabbath would have been the seventh day of the week. We talk about this regularly, the day that we commemorate that God rested, not because he was tired, but because he was done. And we rest in the finished work of Christ in the same way. We have a day that we go like, for this day, I do nothing productive, and yet I'm fully accepted, fully loved, fully redeemed. That's Sabbath. But something strange happened on the first day of the week. They rested on the first day of the week, or excuse me, on the seventh day, and then while they were asleep, something happened. On the dawn of the first day of the week, what we would commemorate as the Lord's Day was inaugurated that first Sunday. Now, this is important because you know how religious folk love change. They love change. 
Like how some of you, I'm not going to make eye contact with you, but you were sitting in the same seat that you've sat in for quite some time now. Because religious folk love change. And something miraculous happened. A day that was holy by God's command, up to this point, all of a sudden, a bunch of religious folk go, hey, I got an idea. Let's change the day that we celebrate who God is to the first day of the week. Let's change. Let's, let's, like, I, I know we've done it this way for thousands of years, but I got an idea. Something happened, and, and, and let's start celebrating it. And the reason we see is right here was the first day of the week. And what happened on that first day of the week changed everything. And this is what happens with time, right? Whenever, whenever like, something massive happens, it reorients your concept of time. Now, I've shared this with you on a regular basis because some of you are new parents or, or you know people who are about to be new parents and you can watch this. But like when something radical happens, it radically reorients your system of measuring time, right? So if you meet someone who has a baby and you're like, how old is your baby? And they'll say something bizarre like 21 months. That's not a thing. No one counts time that way. But something bizarre, something radical happened in those people's life, and now they're calculating time differently. They see the days and months and years differently, and they have new units of measure. Because for them, something happened that radically reoriented the way they even understand the passing of days. And so also, the same thing happened here. Did you catch it? First day of the week. And something radically happened that even the religious folk that hate, hate change go, you know what? Something Something's different. We've got to reorient our religious lives. We can't keep doing it this way. And then something even more drastic happens. If you, if you look at your clock or your smartphone or a calendar, you'll find something, and it will tell you it is 2018. And you will have to ask yourself at some point in your life, what do those numbers mean? 2018 what? 2018 years since what? Do you, you get it? When he says, like, look, after the Sabbath, Right After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, and then he tells us something, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Now, we've already heard them mentioned three times. This is the third time we've heard them mentioned up to this point. Now, I love this. You just need to remember this as you meditate through the Scripture, even through the rest of your life. This is one of my favorites. She gets remembered three different times, at least here with the other Marys. Mary Magdalene, if you look back, remember she was, uh, the, the Gospels tell us that she was healed and Jesus cast out demons that had oppressed her. And when she was set free, she just said, I'm going to follow this man everywhere he goes. And begins, it says, ministered to them. Begin to basically fund and help care for these people, Jesus and his disciples. And they've been there the whole time. They're faithful. But there's something amazing that happens we see here. Behold, it says in verse 2, there was a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on top of it. And you see in the first two verses something powerful here. That in the resurrection, the thing you thought was destroying life, God uses as a part of saving it. Did you catch that? Verse 2. They come expecting to find the dead body of Jesus. They were just as shocked as you might be. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. And then, again, this is just a profound little statement at the very end of verse 2. And he sat on it. And the Gospels are, are beautiful because they, they give us all the mix of like eyewitness accounts, that everyone kind of accounts for the same things, but how it happened was more profound in one way and to one witness. And, and apparently Matthew 
has something to tell us here that as, uh, as the eyewitnesses told him, like there were angels present, even more than one we see in the other Gospels. But something was happening, and evidently at least one of the angels was sitting on the tomb. Right? As if to be like, ta-da! Just sitting. Just hanging out. This is rare. I, I encourage you, you can search the, the Scripture, and an angel sitting on something is not a common occurrence. Just sitting there. As if to say, look what I did. And it's pretty profound because up to this point, if you think about it, all the disciples had up to this point had expected Jesus to take over, to build a new kingdom. They were good religious Jewish men and women who were following him that had expected Jesus to come and inaugurate a new kingdom and to bring a new powerful kingdom and all of David's lineage would be restored and there would be a a new reign over all things. And and they were expecting at this point that like Jesus was going to be president and they were going to be in the cabinet. They were going to ride Jesus' coattails into this new kingdom and they even, we see this on a regular basis, ask Jesus for just that. Hey, when you set up your kingdom, can I sit at your right hand? And up to this point, that's what they expected. Jesus is going to win. We're on the winning side. We're on the right side of history. This is going to play out very nice for us. And something happened that week that turned everything upside down, and all of their hopes were completely dashed. And it's as if the the final thing that really closed the deal for them was that big, massive stone that was rolled over. We saw that it was even sealed. It was sealed over the tomb. And you have to imagine at that moment that each of the one of the disciples that had hoped in this new thing that they were going to get to experience watched all their dreams die as that tomb was sealed by that heavy stone. And that's what makes it so profound that the angel is just sitting on it. Right, the thing that seemed like the ending to the story, not even just the ending to the story, but like the terrible, devastating, sad ending to the story, ends up being the prop that the angel uses to demonstrate the character and nature of God. And I think you'll find this, top to bottom, in the resurrection, the thing you thought that was the sign and sealed symbol of your destruction is actually the thing that God uses to do something more amazing. They watched all of their dreams fall apart. One author puts it this way, Easter, not so much as simply just like a, 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 a victory march for people who haven't experienced pain, but it puts it this way, Easter is actually Jesus carrying us through the deadly peril and into good hope. And we see then that the cross is a symbol of all that God has brought people through. Jesus and the cross and this resurrection is like Jesus carrying people just like Moses carried others through the exodus, through the wilderness, to the conquest, just like Joshua. Jesus is returning from the dead just like all the people before that God had called out of exile would return. He's inaugurating a kingdom, and that kingdom is coming not by this mere absence of conflict or destruction or even suffering, but actually through it. And God does something amazing It'd be one thing to kind of paint a picture with a beautiful canvas and something like a beautiful brand new set of paints and a beautiful brand new set of brushes. But the thing that God does to ensure that neither the paint nor the brushes nor the canvas will get any glory is that he uses terrible things, awful canvases, awful brushes, and awful paints, and he makes something beautiful right through the whole thing. 
such that now the angel seems to use the stone as a prop to say, ha ha, the thing you thought was a sure sign of your destruction is actually just one little thing that God uses to demonstrate how good he is. And he tends to use those parts and pieces in saving us. This is what great stories are made of, right? Awful things happen. Bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. And then the greatest stories we enjoy are the ones where we see that at the end, there's actually a strange joy that works through it. And you know, I, I want to encourage you to look at some of these stories. I was reminded this last week, a pastor reminded me of a movie that came out uh, some 10 years ago. I don't even want to think about how long ago it was, actually. I think like 12 years ago. It was called Signs. M. Night Shyamalan movie. The, the king of the, aha! I didn't see that coming. And it's a profound story where just things just get worse. It's very dark. Like every, the, the tone and, and the, the color scheme is very dark and very dreary. And just bad things are happening. And you've got this, uh, a man who, who, who was, a, who was a, evidently a priest, and he's lost his faith. He's no longer a priest. He's lost his wife. It gets worse. Um, his son is struggling with a life-threatening form of asthma. His daughter has kind of like this weird OCD that she's struggling to cope, and so she drinks water and leaves the water out. And then his brother is kind of washed up and depressed because he's a failure and, and, and like struggling to like contend with his own failure and find like new achievement. They're all like wrecked together, right? And it's like worst thing after worst thing, right? And then something bizarre happens, and then aliens invade, <laughs> right? Like, like, this is a terrible thing. And, oh, 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 I've had an awful life and aliens advice. So people start losing their faith. And, and the, the most phenomenal thing about that story, and the reason I would even mention it or commend it to you, it's it's the kind of story that's so compelling because every single awful thing that piles up on top of it, each other, like throughout the entirety of the story, becomes the backdrop and key focus and, and feature of the happy ending. And at the very end, every single awful thing serves to point towards a more amazing and here's what happens surprising ending you're like i never saw that coming i mean that was terrible and yet here i am i'm seeing it and it's a feature of what makes this beautiful i want you to see that when when the, when, the, when this angel sits on top of what for them would have been the sure sign of doom that all of their hopes had failed it's just one of one of many different things in this story and the way that God works throughout this story of the Bible and in our own lives to take what seems awful and make something beautiful out of it. Not to avoid that which is ugly, but to transform it, redeem it, and make it something greater. And the bad things actually make the joy possible. In fact, like that movie I mentioned, they explain the joy and they make the joy all the, mo all the more great. We see this, the joy of the resurrection, this resurrection power of God. Don't miss this. It will not make you forget all the might-have-beens in your life. It will not erase all the tragedies and disappointments that you've endured. It won't. Instead, as we see here with the angel sitting on the stone, it will include them. And it will cause greater joy Matthew wants us to know that God's going to do something that will show us a greater joy that all the things that had ruined your life were actually a part of God saving it. And if you believe that, something amazing happens. You'll meet Jesus, and he'll give you new life.
The second thing we see in the third and fourth verse, that in the resurrection, God demonstrates his holiness over, against, and even opposite from the world. Don't miss that. Verse 3 says, His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Don't miss that juxtaposition of the physical placement and posture of these people. Did you catch that? There was Jesus who was dead and is now alive and around, and those who were the most vibrant and even a part of oppressing and killing Jesus are doing what? (laughs) They're playing dead. For fear of him. That's what it tells us in verse 4. The guards trembled and became like dead men. It doesn't tell us what that really means, right? I've only met a couple people in my whole life that they get so afraid that they pass out. Okay? Only met a couple. I've never actually seen it, but it's pretty profound. Something happened here. Something scared them so profoundly, they just, they're like, oh my goodness, and passed out. Or even better, they were playing dead. Something happened, and they were like, I'm better, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna lay here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna curl up and just, I'm, I'm dead. Don't, bother, don't worry about me. I'm gonna, I was never here. And they decided the best thing to do from here on out, again, on one hand, they either did it just like unconsciously, passed out because they were shocked, or they were doing it consciously because it says for fear, they became like dead men. They were curled up in the fetal position. That, again, these are warriors. These are the ones that had just put this man to death and helped put his body in this tomb. And then the strange juxtaposition. Matthew wants it to be very clear. Matthew does not want us to miss that. In the resurrection, God is inaugurating a great reversal. The one who was dead alive. And the ones who were alive, as if they were dead. And this is good fun for Matthew. He wants to make sure you see, that's why he adds, like they, it's like they were dead. And this is beautiful because this is inauguration of a new kingdom that we believe is good news. All the people in this world that seem like they're winning at the expense of everyone else won't. And all the people that seem like they're losing won't. Jesus says crazy things, right? Like calling back to Isaiah 55, right? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And Jesus comes along and says things like, if you want to be great in this kingdom that I'm bringing, then first you'll be a servant. And he who's going to be greatest among you will first be your slave. This kingdom's upside down, and it's good news that, it's, that this is so. This is not a kingdom in which a king sends his subjects out to die for his political causes. This is a kingdom in which the king runs ahead of the army to take their place so that no one would know or taste death except for the king. It's an upside-down kingdom. Did you catch it? He wants, Matthew wants you to see the juxtaposition. The one who was alive and put the other one, Jesus, to dead is now laying around like a dead person. But those who were dead, even, even mentioned the, the chapter before, did you catch that? Like, not just Jesus, but evidently there were other people dead other followers of the way dead and then they had people had witnessed that they had come back to life don't miss matthew wants you to see very clearly the resurrection points to something about god that god's bringing a kingdom and he is holy that he is separate from he is over against the world and he is opposite from the ways of the world and he is starting something amazing life-altering transformative it can't be comprehended it can't even be contained let me see in verse 5 this. The resurrection gives us freedom from the world. Now, I emphasize that preposition because we're going to come back to it. Verse 5 tells us this. But 
the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, right? Phrase here throughout. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now that statement is profound. That statement is very profound. You, I, I believe the resurrection points to something that we have now freedom from the world. And that phrase, don't be afraid, means like don't succumb to the natural temptation to simply react to the way things are. But instead, consider the possibility that something new is happening. God is starting something, and now we have freedom from the world. And that means freedom from fear, for these people specifically. But for us, it means because Jesus did this, we don't have to be tied up and enslaved to the things of this world. Here's the way I would point it to you. You don't have to live for today only. You don't have to fear that you won't accomplish all the things on your bucket list. If, if Jesus has overcome the grave and God is doing something that wrecks everything that we understand, then now we're free from all the things that constrain us and hold us captive in this life. Like for some of you, think of it this way. You hate the thought of dying young. You've got things that you need to accomplish. You're not ready. Did you, did you catch this? It says the resurrection sets you free from that. If this is, Paul tells us later, that if our hope is only for this life only, then we above all people should be pitied. What a joke. But since the resurrection is a thing, then we're no longer limited by what we can conceive of in this lifetime. For some of you, you hate the thought of dying single. You hate the thought of dying, I don't know, for some of you, without seeing the Alps or the Great Wall of China. Fill in that thing that you're like, I, this is why I'm not ready to die. I've got things to do. And I want to encourage you, if you're not really careful, you're actually just a slave to your fear of that thing. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I, I, know, I know what you expected. He says to the women, I know that you seek Jesus who's crucified. I know this would be the natural thing to do, to come and to look for Jesus' dead body, but don't. Don't be a slave to that. In the resurrection, God gives us freedom from the world. You no longer have to be enslaved to your fears, to your bucket list, to your own list of things that you have to accomplish. In verse 6, 7, you see this. The resurrection now then gives us freedom for the world. It says, he's not here, he's risen, just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. The resurrection gives us freedom for the world. Not just freedom from the fears and tyranny of these things in our own world. We have freedom to consider the possibility that there is more beyond this world and Jesus will bring us to it. But also now, while we're in the world, we have freedom for its sake. We are given a new life with Jesus, a new set of commands, a new set of expectations. My favorite is this. Martin Luther was asked, hey, what would you do if, G if you knew Jesus was going to come back tomorrow? And his response was, I would plant a tree. And, and that baffled some of those people who had asked him that question. And I would ask you the same thing. If, Does that bother you? He says, I would plant a tree if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow. Because if that bothers you, if you think, oh, Jesus coming back is the end of everything, then I would encourage you, 
think a little bit more biblically about what it is that Jesus has come to accomplish. The resurrection then, as one author has put it, is less like an exclamation mark to the work of God and more like a comma. It's more like a comma. Jesus is alive. Now then, live accordingly. And Luther's point was simply that, man, if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, imagine what he would do. Imagine what he would do with a planted tree. Rather than thinking, oh, I don't have to worry about anything else. So now we have freedom. We have freedom for the world. We have freedom to live for his purpose. We see the way that purpose is played out in verse 8 and 9. In the resurrection, Jesus meets those on his mission. It says, they departed quickly to the, from the tomb. And I love that phrase, just kind of bumped together. Did you catch that? With fear and great joy. Right? For some of you who your eyes have been opened to who Jesus is, like, that, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty appropriate statement, isn't it? It's like, oh my goodness, I'm strangely terrified and joyful. Jesus is Lord? Part of you is like, oh no! He knows everything that I've done. He knows the thoughts of my mind and the, the feelings in my own heart. They're just like, oh no, that's bad. And yet at the same time, we're like, oh, he's for us? He's not against us? That's amazing. And it says they left there with the, those two juxtaposed feelings, fear and joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And look what happened. While they were running to tell the disciples, what happened? What a, what a great phrase in verse 9. Behold, Jesus met them. You see, in the resurrection, Jesus meets those who are on his mission. This is powerful for us. This means that as we jump out to do that which Jesus came to do, to declare freedom to the captives, we come to find out that God meets us there and Christ is present with us. You saw this at the very end, right? Did you catch that? After he says, go make disciples, he says, look, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. There's a profound thing that happens. Jesus meets us on the mission. Verse 10. In the resurrection, God pursues runaways and welcomes outcasts as family. Look at the way it's worded. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell, what a phrase, my brothers. (laughs) I would not have done this. Now, I share this with you on a regular basis. Whenever a dead guy comes back, to confront the people who betrayed him and caused his death. That's a slayer flick, okay? Comes back to destroy and give revenge. And Jesus doesn't. And I wouldn't do it this way. I would let him sit in it, wouldn't you? Like, hey, go tell them I'm alive. And I'll meet them. Tell them, I want to meet you. That's what I would do. That's why I'm not Jesus. One of many reasons why, but at least one. Go tell my brothers, right? Tell my brothers, I'm alive. But notice that phrase, my brothers, and what it already implies about the message. Jesus sends his love and acceptance ahead of them. I'd I'd let him sweat it out. Tell them you've seen me, but what does Jesus say? No, make sure you tell them. Make sure you tell them. And when they ask, like, Jesus, Jesus is alive? What did he say? He said, make sure that I would tell my brothers. Wait, he said brothers? He, he's not mad. Time out. He's not mad? 
I mean, think about this. Up to this point, if they really believed him, we would expect the disciples to have been there. But who's there? The faithful women. They're there. They're right there. It says, Matthew makes sure we know they were there. They were there when he died. They were there when he buried him. And they were there whenever he left the tomb. They discovered it first. And if the disciples had any hint that this was actually going to happen, if they'd really caught wind that Jesus was going to um, come back alive, they would have been there, right? Peter first, right? He'd have been like, I told you. I knew it. Figured it out. Got it. You know he would, but he doesn't. Instead, he's probably hiding somewhere. He certainly isn't at the tomb. And they say, go back, tell my brothers. And what a beautiful thing we see. God pursues runaways and welcomes outcasts as family. The people that had betrayed him. Don't miss that. The people that had underperformed, that had choked under pressure. Jesus says, hey, go make sure you tell them, fam, squad, brothers, I'm for you. And then they'll see me. They'll encounter me. Now, verse 11 through 15 is where it gets tricky. In the resurrection, we're confronted with the life of God beyond the limits of human explanation. Now, it would be very tempting at this point to think that, like, this is how we typically think, like, well, we live in a more advanced and more, we have a more scientific and enlightened worldview. And so those people are, are much more likely to have believed something crazy and miraculous, like a man who was dead and came back from the dead. We have a, a, a more difficult time because we are more advanced human beings. And that'd be a temptation that I wouldn't push back against. We're not. Again, had they expected it, the disciples would have been there on the first day. They didn't. And the women who did go to visit Jesus went there to prepare a decaying, rotting body. No one saw this coming. No one. And so resist the temptation to be like, well, they could believe in a risen Jesus because they're more, they're more like, I don't know, primitive than we are. No, no one saw this coming. No one was ready for it. The guards weren't ready for it. Right? The people who went to visit the empty tomb, they weren't ready for it. The disciples weren't ready for it. And this is what you'll find out, that Jesus will burst all of your categories. You see, the empty tomb is hard to explain. It really demands something of us. And there's no one who gets off. There's no one like who gets off easy, like, oh, I understand the empty tomb. That's not troubling at all. And that's what we see in verse 11 through 15, their attempt to like make sense of it, explain it, justify it. And it's tempting to think that those people might have found that more acceptable and believable, but that's not the case. And Matthew makes it clear, no one expected this. We often say, well, if I were more primitive, if I were not as enlightened and advanced as I am, okay, snowflake, then I would believe. But don't miss this. Don't soften this. A man who was dead that is now alive, it's just as unexpected then as it is for us. And the only reason we see here that they're telling them that it happened is that it actually did. Jesus will burst your categories. He will burst them. He will mess with them. It's supernatural. And we're invited to look through it. We're invited to look in the tomb. I love that part. Like, like the, the angel rolled the tomb away, but we find out in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus didn't, uh, he rolled the stone away. Jesus didn't need the stone removed. Jesus was like walking through walls and flying and doing all crazy cool stuff, right? He didn't need the stone moved. He could have done just whatever he wanted, but we find that the angel rolled the tomb away. Why? Not so that Jesus could get out, but so that we could look in. Don't, don't try to soften this. It's, the empty tomb is not the main point, but it points to the point. And our faith is in a risen Christ. And something amazing here happens, and it defies all of our categories. And there's a conspiracy, right? 
And Matthew wants us to know he didn't hide it. He's like, yeah, this is how people explained it, and it's been carried on to this day. My favorite explanation of this, or at least like kind of, kind of point is, some of you've heard me say this before, but one of my favorite figures in history, uh, a man by the name of Chuck Colson, started a prison ministry, and he was actually on uh, a part of Nixon's administration. He's one of the, the Watergate Seven that went to prison for doing illegal things and obstructing justice, right? Heard the gospel and was changed by it, and then began to minister in the prison and started a prison ministry. And one of the coolest things he shared is that one of the most impactful parts of the gospel for him was that in his, like, in his scheme with these other, the, the Watergate Seven, he said these were like 12 of the most powerful men, and they couldn't keep a secret for more than a couple weeks. <laughs> like almost as soon as it had happened, and as soon as the pressure was put on them, they started going into plea deals to get out of it. And that's almost always what happens. Because if there's something you're hiding and someone comes along and goes like, hey, I'll, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll make it easier if you'll just like narc on your friends, if you'll just out the truth. It happens every single time. And Colson says this, like, I know the resurrection's a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. There's 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years. And they never once denied it. They never once accepted a plea deal. They were beaten. They were tortured. They were stoned, put in prison, and killed. There's no way they would have endured it if it weren't true. And he speaks confessionally here. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years under the risk and threat of death? That's impossible. And I would ask you this, what would it take to share a life-threatening message even to the point of death? Now, I offer you this to consider. They saw Jesus alive. They had denied him once. They would not do it twice. 1 Corinthians puts it this way, and it's a really strange thing that happens and converges today. It's April 1st. It's April Fool's. If you know me, I hate April Fool's. April Fool's is for liars looking for opportunities to trick their friends. Yeah. They never like, it's never like a good one. Like, there's an awful thing. No, actually, it's a great thing. It's always like, it's a great thing. Actually, no, it's terrible. Check your conscience. I'm done. That's not not in the Bible. That's not. You can do whatever you want to with April Fool's. I'm speaking with no authority here. But, But there's a really strange juxtaposition that's happening even today, isn't there? Isn't there? 1 Corinthians 1 says it this way. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. Yeah, don't miss it. It's an appropriate day to celebrate a profound thing that Jesus is alive. It, we, it, don't soften it. It defies all your categories, and it just seems foolish. Verse 16 and 17, it says, we find that in the resurrection, God exposes our deep idols and objects of worship by exposing our doubts. So if you're a skeptic in this room, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer. I want to I grab your attention really quickly here, okay? You really need to see this. Because it'd be easy for me to stand up here and just kind of pretend like you've heard about Jesus and you don't have any doubts or any skepticism. But look at this. And some people say, look, if I saw Jesus, I would believe. Surely I would. But in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, met them there, right? And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And then there's a phrase at the end of that. I wish it wasn't there, but it is. But some doubted. And this is what happens. In the resurrection, God exposes our deep idols and objects of worship by exposing our doubts. 
And your reason for doubting the resurrection exposes a lot about what you really value and what you really believe. Skepticism and Christian doubts are similar. It'd be a lie to say that we don't have doubts. In fact, Matthew wants you to know some of them were staring at Jesus and doubted. And so if you're here and you're skeptical, I'm really glad you're here because I am too. And Matthew says that even people who saw Jesus face to face were skeptical. But your doubts and your skepticism point to something that I want you to think more clearly about. If you'll say, well, I would believe in Jesus if. Well, on the other side of that if is the thing you actually value most highly in your life. I believe in Jesus. I'd trust him if I saw him. Right? Well, congratulations. You're like a toddler who doesn't have object permanence. If I don't see it, it doesn't exist. But think about that. Think about how self-centered a worldview it takes to believe that. If I don't see it, it can't be real. And, and just think about the thing. You're, you're saying, if I, don't, if I don't experience it, if it's not in my own subjective reality, it's not real. And I want to encourage you. That, that's a terrible and awful way to live. What a desperate and sad way to live. And I want to encourage you, like, this exposes what you really value. And to value Jesus is just better. And it's a good thing to know it. You see, the resurrection is God's gift to you to expose it and allow you to see it for what it is, the object of your actual worship. Oh, you may not bow down to it, but you trust in it more than anything else. Maybe you do enshrine it, right? Maybe you park it in your garage. Maybe you live in it. Maybe whatever you insure, you invest heavily into it. And you'll say, I'll trust in Jesus just as long as he gives me what I want. Well, there you go. You're a slave to your own passions. Your days go up and down with your moods. See it like this. If I say that Jesus is alive, if part of you says, so what? That's the thing. Right? If I say, Jesus is alive, excitedly and passionately, exuberantly, and you're like, so what? And then fill in the blank afterward, just know this is where the resurrection exposes what you really love. So what? My marriage is still garbage. You see it? See where you're putting your hope? Jesus is alive. So what? My job's trash. Hate my boss. See it? And the resurrection is an, inv an invitation to trust in greater things and to throw off lesser things and find hope in something amazing. And the resurrection, we see at the very end, Jesus comforts us with his power and presence. He says, I'm never going to leave you. Don't miss this. It says, if you put this all together, connect the dots. He's not here. He's alive. If you'll come and see, then what will happen is you'll go and tell. And as you go and tell, you will see him. He will meet you. He will be with you. Don't miss it. Connect the dots. This is the offensive part. Jesus is not just some moral figure. He destroys categories. He is God. He is divinity. He is doing something. And to consider the possibility that it's true is to experience reality in a whole new way. And he meets us as we go. My favorite is in Acts chapter 3, right? They just do this, right? They go out telling, and Jesus meets them. They start healing people, and then they get beat up for it. And in Acts chapter 4, they tell a couple of them, like, hey, stop telling people about Jesus. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, you know, you, can t you tell us. We could, we, could, we could obey God, or we could obey you. But as for, as for us, we will not stop speaking about what we have seen. Don't miss it. In the going, Jesus meets us. It's in the going, the turning away from one thing and looking towards something else. Jesus 
meets us. Please don't miss this. Here's how we'll respond today. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper together. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to take up our offering and invest, invest in seeing the gospel go to the nation, specifically North America, right? And then we're going to be invited as we're ready to go to the back and someone's going to serve you communion and something profound is going to happen. They're going to say something bizarre. The body of Christ broken for you. And you'll take that piece of bread and you'll dip it into a bit of juice and someone will say, the blood of Christ shed for you. And you'll experience something profound. And so if you're not a believer, man, I, I, don't, don't, worry, don't worry about it. You can just watch. You could be, be skeptical and, and watch. It just would be a very unsatisfying snack to you. It would be really weird. So don't feel tempted or like pressured to do that. But something profound happens. And some of you in this room know this. For those who believe, did you catch that? He's not here, he's risen. And if you'll go, he'll meet you. There's something profound here. As we stand to declare the gospel in song, something bizarre will happen. When you get up and go back there, he's back there waiting to meet you. He's waiting at the table. He's waiting. This is an amazing thing that happens when you turn away from what's behind you and look to him. You come to find out he was waiting there all along. Don't miss that. He sent his friends to go ahead and say, look, tell, them, tell my brothers I'm waiting for them. I'll meet them. I'll see them. And oh, by the way, I'll never leave them. Something inexplicable will happen and a piece of bread and some juice. And then you turn from doubt and you renounce it. If you admit your sin and sinfulness and you look to him, you begin to delight in the finished work of Christ more than other things. And he meets you at the table. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness towards us. And we thank you that today, uh, more than any other day, it is visible for us. God, first, thank you so much for, for bringing uh, some of these people into this room. I thank you for bringing skeptics and self-righteous alike all into this room. I thank you for drawing them here. I pray that more than anything else, they're invited to experience and believe good news that if Jesus is alive, then every other category that we have for things is subject to him. If Jesus is alive, then that means death doesn't get the last word. If Jesus is alive, then fear doesn't have to reign. And if Jesus is alive, then we're no longer slaves to the things in our own lives. We can experience a greater joy in him. Now, would you begin to open our eyes to this? Would you begin to grant us faith? to consider the possibility that Jesus is alive, that all our previously held categories and assumptions may not be true, and everything is now subject to this goodness described and declared to us in Jesus Christ. We ask this thing, that this might become real to us, and we might respond and go to him and find that he's been waiting there all along, calling us, pursuing us, and drawing us to himself. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen.